What has feminism done to reveal forgotten corners of the New Testament? How can a few verses in Luke chapter 8 change our understanding of Jesus and the disciples? Was Mary Magdalene a real leader in the early church? And what role does imagination have to play in reading the New Testament faithfully today? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host Philip Fleming, and in today's show I'll be talking to Helen Bond. Helen is Professor in Christian Origins specialising in the New Testament and Head of the School of Divinity at Edinburgh University. And our question today is, what role did women play in the world of Jesus and the early church? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Helen Bond, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, We're here in Edinburgh recording this. Um, What's your role here and how have you got to it? I'm Professor of Christian Origins here, and I'm also Head of School. Um, I'm fairly new in that post, so I'm still learning my way. Um, It's still in my first year, so... um all fine so far. Um, and I've been, I've been here 19 years. Prior to that, I was in the University of Aberdeen. And before that, I taught at a, a college in Manchester, Northern College, which was a United Reformed Theological College. So you've devoted your life to the study of the New Testament and the early church. If I can ask, where did that interest first come from? How did that sort of prove to be the direction that you wanted to follow? Well, I belong to a family that always went to church, and I'm still a member of the Church of Scotland, but it was actually the academic side of things that really appealed to me. I was I was at school, and I was doing scripture, as it was called in those days, and um, for my O-levels, or GCSEs, um, we were doing Mark's Gospel, and we did um, this thing called the synoptic problem, which is really um, the literary relationship between the first three Gospels. So um, the question is, you know, Matthew, Mark and Luke are very similar in many passages. So there's clearly a, a literary relationship between them. And it's working out what that relationship was. And um, I was very interested in maths and uh, puzzles and not, uh, uh, logic problems, that kind of thing. And so this just really appealed to me. I, I just love the idea that the evangelists had copied and um, they sort of felt naughty and, um, and and then I started looking at you know there's this thing called redaction criticism where you look at uh, Matthew for example and you look at the way that Matthew has used Mark and how has Matthew changed Mark and how does that show what Matthew's interested in and even on an English text even at 15 you know I could do that and I just found that really interesting and so I decided I'd do a level in scripture and it was Old Testament, New Testament, and and then I got really interested in ancient civilizations, the Babylonians, mm. the Egyptians, and I loved all of those coffee table books with all the glossy pictures. And so, slightly surprisingly to people who knew me, I, I decided I'd do theology at university. And... Um, I always thought that I'd probably like Old Testament best, but I, when I was there, I decided that it was the Gospels and New Testament that I liked best. I sort of exchanged the Babylonians for the Romans, and um, it was always that kind of putting the texts in their contemporary world that I really liked, sort of seeing these as, as Greco-Roman texts and trying to understand, um, you know, that just the situation that they were written in. 
What is it that you find so attractive or what difference does it make about really understanding the situation of the text to actually understanding them properly? Well, I think they are, you know, they are ancient documents and I know a lot of people will read the texts nowadays. A lot of Christians certainly approach the, the texts. They'll read them and say, what does this mean to me? The difficulty with that is that the the texts are written in a very alien environment. I mean, they assume a patriarchal outlook. Um, there's a lot of imperialism in these texts. Even when they're anti-imperialism, mm. they're, they're still talking about a kingdom of God and this sort of faraway future where there's going to be this... Uh, final judgment, um, the the whole family system that they presuppose is one with a, a male at the head and they presuppose slavery. So much of these texts is um, is very alien to our own world. And I think for, for me, it, it just makes them far more interesting because the question then isn't simply one of what do they say and how do I live by that today? It's what do they say and and what what does that say when sort of reinterpreted in a modern context? How can I use that as as a guide to a modern context which is actually very different? You know, what's the equivalent of that today? So it's it's not just a straightforward x equals y. So mm. so that's that's what I find really fascinating about these texts. Today we're looking at the ministry of women in the early churches depicted in the New Testament. Um, can you give us a sense of what the scholarship in that area has looked like over the years? And when did, do you think, the first real kind of real interest in the specific ministry of women in the New Testament really take place? Well, biblical scholars are dedicated followers of fashion. So whatever's happening in the, the secular world does tend to have an impact on the um, the biblical world or the the world of biblical scholarships, so um, I think just as in secular society there were some glimmerings of feminism early on in the twentieth century, but the main sort of you know the main wave of feminism was in the seventies. So um, biblical scholarship has followed that too, and it was really in the seventies that you get people really starting to ask questions about um, the role of women in these texts. And a very big name from then is um, Elizabeth Schusler-Fiorenza, who um, wrote an extremely influential book called In Memory of Her in 1983. It was published. And this was, I think she called it a a Christian feminist uh, or a feminist theological um, account of Christian origins. So it's, it's an attempt to to look at the texts and really highlight the role of women in them um, because before people had tended to just look at what the men were doing and, and to see the women as kind of light relief in all of this. So um, that's a very influential book. And although it's quite hard, I mean, it's not an easy read, but it was it was appropriated by all sorts of church groups and women's societies. And, and I think people realise that actually... You know, the Bible and the Christian tradition have played quite an important role in terms of um, patriarchy generally within culture. So so that was very influential in the 80s. And um, people have continued along that line. I think 
in the last decade or so, people have moved away a little bit from sort of feminist readings now to being interested in sort of gendered readings. So uh, masculinity is also something that people are interested in, again, in the same way that in in sort of contemporary society, um, it's that, that fluidity of gender um, and, and that recognition that, that gender is culturally... Um, you know, culturally put together so so you can get studies for example on the masculinity of Jesus and in many ways Jesus is not a typical uh, first century man and so what does that say about Jesus about other people that he comes in contact with so so I think things have moved on a little bit from kind of feminist to more sort of gendered readings but but still really interesting in in terms of the way that um you know, people are sort of problematizing gender in these texts. Mm. Can we look at a specific text in particular, which mm-hmm. is um, uh, Luke chapter 8, where uh, the evangelist mentions uh, a number of women who were accompanying and serving Jesus. We've got Mary Magdalene, we've got Joanna, we've got Susanna and the others. Mm. Um, who were these women? <laughs> <laughs> and what's significant about that? It's, a, it's a, just a few verses, mm. but what's significant about that and their depiction in the ministry of Jesus yeah well I wish I wish I knew more about them they're they're sort of tantalizing <laughs> little little glimpse um, Luke actually gets these women from Mark um, in Mark's gospel uh, Mark just tells us about Jesus walking around Galilee with the 12 male disciples and so we have this mental picture of Jesus and the and the men and it's only when we get to right at the end when the the men have all run away and Jesus is on the cross suddenly Mark says oh and there were some women there too and they'd accompanied him from Galilee um and 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 they're going to play an important role for Mark because they're sort of the the link between the cross and the tomb but that little note means that we have to reevaluate our whole kind of mental picture of Jesus. He, it's not just Jesus and the 12 men, as we thought before, um, and as is, is depicted in just about all art and films and documentaries. Mm. Every picture we ever see of Jesus mm. is Jesus and the merry men. But actually, it's Jesus and the men and and a whole load of women. And that's a very different picture. And then what what Luke does is to to introduce these women earlier. So it's the same sort of group that that Mark has, but but Luke just puts them in what's actually a more natural place in Galilee. And so he says that these women are there too. And another thing that Luke does is to kind of up them on the social scale a little bit. So he says Joanna is the wife of Herod Steward, chooser. Now, Herod Steward is probably a slave, um, but still he's a, he's a posh slave. He's sort of top of the top of the the, the slave ladder, um, and so she's presumably a woman of a certain amount of kind of standing, at least sort of among the the slaves, or at least in the court at Herod of Herod. And um, Luke also says that they're providing for them out of their own means which seems to imply finances. So it seems to be that they are in some way paying for something that the group need, whether that's uh, bread or other provisions or uh, smoothing the way for them to, um, to find lodgings or whatever it is, that, there's, that these women are, to some extent, elite and to some extent they have money. Um, now, that might be historically true, but it might also be the case that um, 
Luke is playing into a, a common trope in the um, ancient world, whereby religions that attracted women were bad, especially if you had sort of common uh, rabble rousing women. Um, that's that's a very bad thing. So if you want to, if you want to say negative things about your neighbor's religion, you just say, "Oh, it's full of slaves and women." Um, but on the other hand, if the women who are attracted to the uh, religion are elite and wealthy and, um, you know, of status, then that's actually a good thing. So um, it might be that what, what uh, Luke is doing here is trying to kind of raise their status so that so that they're respectable women now. And, and he does that a little bit in Acts, too. He says, that, you know, elite women were, were interested in the in the movement. So although I would like to think that they are quite posh women with money, um, I doubt that, actually. I think Luke is probably um, putting a spin on it there. So we don't know anything more about Joanna, the wife of Herod Stewart. I would love to know more about her. She's just one of those those characters. I, I would really like to know the backstory. Um, we can infer possibly a little bit more about Mary Magdalene. Um, I mean, what's interesting, interesting about her is that there's no male attached to her. And nearly always in the ancient world, people were known or women were known by their father and then their husband and then their children, well, their sons. Um, and the interesting thing about Mary is that she's not attached to any men at all. Um, she's just known as Mary Magdalene, which most people think means she comes from the the, the town of Magdala, um, a, a fairly prosperous um, fishing town on the, the banks of Lake Galilee. Um, my friend uh, Joan Taylor from uh, King's College London suggests that it's from the Aramaic Migdal, uh, meaning tower, and that this is a, a, um, a nickname that Mary has been given in the same way that Peter is the rock, um, Mary is the tower. Um, which then, as now, would probably imply that she was, you know, the fortress woman, the strong woman. Um, and that's quite a nice idea. I mean, whether right or not, I think, I think the fact that Mary is so prominent in in the gospel traditions does suggest that um, she's somehow a leader of the women's um, the women's disciples. And if you think about the ancient world. Um, it would have been pretty difficult, I think, for a male-only group of disciples to have evangelized people. I mean, you do, you know, if you imagine going into a, a village where women tend to congregate with other women or yeah. they're inside yeah. in the homes, um, I think it would be very difficult for someone like Peter to go and talk to these women and then to baptize them or to put oil on them or, you know, it would have been highly um frowned upon for for women to talk to men they didn't know and so I think in terms of um, early church strategies of evangelization you would have needed quite a few women in the group so that um, as the disciples sort of went around um, the women could go to other women and evangelize them so so my hunch is that uh, Mary Magdalene is sort of the leader of that group of women and we certainly know that later on um, in the early church, men and women went out in sort of pairs. So it may well be that they did that earlier, too. So the picture you're presenting of, of this little, as you say, this tantalising glimpse from Luke 8 is, is of, a, of, of, a, of a slightly challenging the, the picture we often have of Jesus and his merry men. <laughs> uh, and it is actually a picture of male and female 
disciples working uh, in different ways and different part of the evangelistic strategy however we understand the particular reference to those women in Luke kind of tracking forward to the to the post-resurrection era and looking at the as you say the material from Acts which Luke gives women as you say there's Lydia from Thyatira mm. that's a well-bred woman and but also in, in the Pauline letters what are the what are the ways in which women exercise leadership that kind of challenge or work around the cultural norms of the day? Well, we hear from Paul's letters in particular that um, there are women who are leaders of house churches, um, Chloe and um, uh, there's also Prisca, who um, her and her husband. And interestingly, Prisca's name is put before Aquila's, which is... It is fine today. No one would comment on that today. But in the ancient world, that is strange to put the woman's name first. Um, and so that that does kind of again, they're tiny, tiny little glimpses of um, of different worlds where um, there are house churches meeting in the homes of women, prominent women, and you wonder what kind of role women would have had in that. Um, were they just sort of ordering in the bread or, you know, were they actually breaking it, passing it around? Were they leading the prayers? Um, it's difficult to imagine that that these women were entirely kind of passive in all of that. So, so just by sort of opening up their homes, I think um, there's a certain amount of um, of agency that, that that women can have in all of this. You also hear, as I mentioned, about sort of uh, missionary pairs. So you have Aquila and Prisca. You also have Andronicus and Junia in um, Romans 16. So this idea of sort of pairs, men and women sort of going out and evangelizing together um, I think one thing that you need to bear in mind about the early church, too, though, is that it had this um, apocalyptic outlook. You know, they were strongly of the opinion that um, they were living in the final days and that the end was going to come very, very soon. And I think the best sort of analogies for that are millenarian movements today where, again, they kind of think that the end of the world is coming. And I think in that kind of atmosphere... Um, ordinary um, social etiquette and attitudes do tend to be held slightly more lightly. And I think it's partly this idea of early Christians that, that the, the end of the world is coming that in a way allows women to to perhaps um, exercise leadership or teaching roles that they might not otherwise have had. And certainly as that sort of initial apocalyptic fervour um, gets dampened down as the end of the world doesn't come and the church realises that it has to be there for the long haul um, and it starts to think about how do we look in society it seems to be the women that are the first casualties there you know that the important thing is that our women look like they they know what's what and they're in order and they're not unruly and so I think that that sort of it, it, it's that that sense that you know the world is as we know it is going to be brushed aside very soon that really helps women that early period so is that um, a way in which you'd understand so those texts in 1 Corinthians where Paul is seeking to sort of perhaps create fresh levels of order in what was a fairly exciting Corinthian 
community where um for you it's about dampening down that millennial yeah i think so but i don't think that that passage in 1 corinthians 14 was written by paul Mm. it's um the manuscript evidence shows that it moved about a bit i'm pretty sure that um and also paul would have to be pretty schizophrenic because in chapter 11 he had said that women could prophesy in the church the only thing was that they needed to cover their heads and then i don't think he's going to say a couple of verses a couple of chapters later women can't can't speak at all so I think I think Paul actually is still fairly open towards women I mean he he accepts that they're prophesying he he's very positive towards uh, Prisca and um, he knows that churches are meeting in women's houses he greets many many women in uh, Romans 16 and he even sends the most important letter that he ever writes the letter to the Romans by the hand of Phoebe and presumably she is not only taking it there but reading it out and explaining it to the the Roman congregation so I think Paul's had a bit of a bad press I think it's sort of after Paul um, and certainly those letters in the New Testament that are written in Paul's name but are probably written by disciples of Paul in the late first century uh, maybe even second century when you come to the pastorals I think by that stage there really is a feeling that um, Christianity is there for the long haul and you have to be careful that your women look like they're you know, being like Roman women and they know their place. And and it's at that stage where I think you start to get these little additions to genuine Pauline writings, which is what I think 1 Corinthians 14 is. So what is the... Um if we're sort of teasing out this is what's going on in the ancient world in terms of the, the profile, the role of women in the ministry of Jesus and in the early church, that perhaps has been kind of downplayed in our in the imagination that's gone on over the years. What are the ways that um, does connect with contemporary understandings of ministry, service and leadership of women? Well, in the Church of Scotland, we've had women since 1968, so um, it's quite normal. And I I imagine there could still be women who find it difficult um, to be called to churches, perhaps. But I, I think, by and large, it's not really an issue uh, in the churches that I tend to inhabit, there's also we don't have bishops up here, and uh, we do have a moderator, and we're we've just had a woman. I think we've had about three women by now. So um, it depends. Yeah, I, I think I think the the churches that are most closely allied to the biblical account possibly find it easier to be open to women. Um, I think, I mean, you just need to look at the the difficulties in the Anglican Church still over women bishops and um, and the Catholic Church, which hasn't um, yet got uh, female priests to see that. It, I mean, it, it, it's a completely different story in, in other churches. So I suppose it depends whether you just prioritize the biblical story or whether tradition and later interpretation is also taken into consideration. Um, but yes, um, for me, I think you know the, the the primary thing is to to look at what things were like in the ancient world, and um, and, and and given Jesus's openness to to both genders and the role that women played in the early church, I don't see any reason why we should want to limit women's um, activities today. Stepping back from looking at the particular case study we've looked at in terms of the role of. Um, uh, women in the early church and the picture you've painted of actually Jesus's 
far more um, uh, involving of, of women and men on an equal level. What are the lessons from looking at this particular case study about reading the Gospels and reading the New Testament more generally? What are the sort of lessons we might want to take away as we kind of engage with the scriptures ourselves? Well, I think imagination is important. Um, certainly when I studied um, theology in the, the late 80s, um, there wasn't much um, there wasn't much time spent on on the on the stories involving women. Um, they were sort of generally regarded as light relief, and um, you know, not not the really heavy duty stuff. And and quite often too, as in that passage in in Luke, um, there, there's just not very much to go on. You know, we would love to know more about them, but we don't. And so you know, there's only so much speculation you can do. But um, I do think a certain amount of imagination that lets you think, well, okay, we only have a tiny bit of information here, but, but let's speculate. Let's, let's ask questions. Um, let's ask questions about Andronicus and Junia. I mean, who is Junia? She's in prison with Paul. And, and this man, Andronicus, are they married? Are they two missionary pairs? You know, again, we, we don't have any other information, but, but I think we can, we can allow our, our, our minds to speculate on, on what this might have been like or or Phoebe too what kind of reaction did she get when she went to Rome with this letter so rather than sort of quickly moving over these women and saying well we just don't know anything about them I think I think we can we can try and speculate a little bit more use our imagination to to write these women back um, because they certainly have been written out not necessarily intentionally I don't really think that the evangelists set out to diminish the role of women it's just that 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 wasn't what they were doing they're they're writing to instill faith in people they're writing about Jesus and the 12 disciples the the sort of reconstitution of Israel the 12 tribes you know all of those are important things um so it's not so much I think that they deliberately wrote women out although possibly some of those later Pauline um, you know the ones that aren't really written by Paul. Um, maybe some of those letters are deliberately trying to to downplay women's roles. But I think by and large, it's just an accident of history, and um, we can try and sort of reverse that. So instead of uh, looking at kind of little hints in the text and saying well, we don't know very much, we're saying actually let's dive into them a bit more. Let's stay with them for a bit longer. Let's particularly let's put them against a wider ancient world context because when you look at the ancient world and then just put these little verses against them there's often more light that we can shed than we often expect yes exactly i think that's right i mean even in the case of mary magdalene you know what I mean, traditionally, she's been said to be a prostitute. There's no evidence for that whatsoever in in the Gospels. She's nothing but a thoroughly respectable woman. But again, we can ask, um, you know, what kind of person would have come from Magdala if that's where she did come from? Um, You know, why does she not have any men associated with her? Um, What is her story? And we're, we're never going to be able to get down to any kind of history that you can prove, but but you can speculate, you can ask the kind of things that she might have been able to do, the kind of things she might have been able to do in the early church that perhaps Peter couldn't, um, and and see why it might have been useful to, to the early church to have um, a, a women's mission and a men's mission. I mean, we're very familiar 
as uh, biblical scholars on the the mission to the Jews and the mission to the Gentiles, as if kind of that's that's the big thing. But actually, you know, that mission to the women, mission to the men may have been and probably was just as important. And the whole mission to the women probably they're not so bothered about circumcision. <laughs> but, um, you know, they would have had their own concerns, purity and, and other, other matters. Um, so again, trying to, trying to speculate on what, what that might have been like. And, and of course, historical purists will say, well, we can't possibly know. But that shouldn't stop us. It's still trying to put back half of history. Your reference to Magdala... And what we're continuing to find out reminds me that the, the village of Magdala has recently been mm, excavated mm, on, the, on the western mm. shores of the Sea of Galilee. You and I are both enthusiasts about visits <laughs> to the Holy Land. What, what role does, does, it, does actually kind of walking the ground have in helping fill in this background against which we can read these little little text with perhaps a little bit more imagination yeah good question um i mean jesus doesn't jesus never went to magdala as far as the the gospels um tell us um but it but yes i mean those excavations there give us this sense of a thriving um little port a town um magdala was was well known for the the fishing industry and drying fish there and and exporting it all over the world so again it gives a slightly different picture um of of Jesus and the the sort of social status of some of those um, early followers. I mean, my guess is that by and large, most of them were fairly poor, but um, not necessarily all of them. Um, the Sea of Galilee was quite mixed in terms of um, social status. But I'm a big fan of going to these places. And even though, you know, how do we know where any of this happened? I mean, you go to Jerusalem and you're constantly being told this is where Jesus stumbled, this is where Jesus cried, this is where he did something else. And um, of course, you know, the biblical scholar in me says, well, we don't know any of that. And um, Jerusalem was so badly um, destroyed by the Romans, first in 70 and then in 135, that um, the chances of us being able to pinpoint any of those places are very slim. But I still think there's something about going there and smelling the smells, hearing the sounds. Um, There's something about Jerusalem in particular. I just love Jerusalem. And there's something about it that you do feel like you could be in the past. And I, I think it does bring all that biblical story home. And even if things didn't happen at the traditional sites, I don't think that matters because, you know, centuries of, of believers have thought that they did and and have used those locations to to think imaginatively about about the text and and backstory to the text and what it means to them in their own lives. So yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of people going to Israel and having a look around. You've helped us uh, see about the role that imagining the ancient world a bit more fully helps us understand not only texts around women, but also the New Testament world in particular. Uh, Professor Helen Bond, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.